So for those of you who are not basketball aficionados, uh, up on the big screen is uh, Hall of Fame coach uh, Pat Riley. He has won over 10 championships, both as an NBA player and as a coach. And he took the time out to once answer the question, why do most championship teams not repeat? Why don't they go back to back and win another championship? And he explains it this way. At first, you're completely focused on winning that championship. But once you do, your eyes start to wander to other priorities. That players start to think about, I want more money or more media attention. I want more endorsements and accolades for me personally. And what happens is this once cohesive, hardworking group of players that had such team chemistry together, they begin to fray. Egos and attitudes and team chemistry starts to turn toxic. Players begin to feel entitled, uh, ignoring the small routine tasks that actually win championships. <coughs> Excuse me. And the result is that even the most talented teams end up dethroned, not by a better team on the outside, but by the distractions on the inside. You see, the enemy of success isn't failure. Because with failure, you can learn from your mistakes. It often sharpens your focus and helps you to do better the next time. The enemy of success is complacency. Complacency makes you settle for less than. It makes you inattentive and unready for potential threats and pitfalls ahead of you. If you think about a lot of the stories that we hear in the news, when are people most primed for catastrophic failure in their lives? When they're doing well. When they're doing well at work or in ministry or in their family. Yeah, things, my, my wife and my kids are doing really well. Then people tend to relax and get distracted from defending themselves against temptation or deterioration in their relationships. And so the question we want to answer this morning is how do you fight the dangers of complacency? If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 6. We are in this series as we launch the new year. We're continuing this series called Restore, where we learn how to experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what's broken. And that when God builds something in our lives, that he doesn't simply replace that old broken stuff, but he builds something new, something better. And that's the story of the gospel. When Jesus comes, he gives us a new life, not just replacing what we already had, sinfulness, fallenness, and brokenness. He gives us a new life, something much better. And we saw in chapters 1 through 3 that God gave Nehemiah this conviction for a suffering city in need of a savior. And so with planning and preparation and uh, a prayer, he cast this vision for the people of God to rebuild the physical and spiritual walls of their families and communities together. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he starts to encounter threats, external, internal, and even personal, and how to respond prayerfully and practically with integrity to resist those distractions. But here's what's happening with us today. After they finish building the walls of Jerusalem, after a church finishes building a new worship center, after you have survived and maybe even thrived in 2021, it's easy to grow complacent towards sin 
and Satan and spiritual attacks around us that can distract and derail and destroy you and everything that you've built, your careers and connections, your family and ministry, your maturity or recovery from sin. And so how does God guide Nehemiah through the dangers of complacency? Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So what's happening here is 140 years, the walls of Jerusalem have been in ruins. Here in verse 15, miraculously, it takes just 52 days to finish rebuilding the wall. Now, for some of you are thinking, so what? But in the ancient Near East, this is a matter of life and death. The walls and the gates enclose a city, protecting it against external threats and enemies. And so without a completed wall, you're left exposed to those who want to overrun God's city and God's people. And in verse 16, these adversaries of Judah, they notice and they respond. Do you notice how they respond? Not simply with resignation, but with fear. Why? Two reasons. One is that all this time, they thought that these Jewish people, they're incompetent, under-resourced, too much so to be able to rebuild a wall, and that Jerusalem is like the only house on a street without a fence. It's defenseless. It's easy to intimidate and subjugate because we're the neighborhood bullies and we're better than them. But now we see in verse 16, they fell greatly in their own esteem, that it turned out that the Jewish people weren't so weak and we, their neighbors, are not so great and that they, the Israelites, are really a threat. Second reason, the speed with which the wall was completed could only have been accomplished with divine help. And so they're fearful of a God who is present and powerful with people. Now, what is the lesson here? With the completion of this wall, the Jewish people give praise in, this ver- in verse 16 for the work that has been accomplished with the help of our God. And so when something like that is done, it's a time for what? For rest and appreciation and celebration of what God has done. And yet, the lesson here in this passage is that they cannot grow complacent. The big idea of the text this morning is that even in victory, we must remain vigilant against threats to God's work and God's people. Why? I want you to think about it this way. When a bully gets showed up, do they just tend to give up and say, okay, you win, buddy. You were much smarter than me. You figured things out better than me. You were faster than me. Or is a bully more likely when they get agitated to get more aggressive? You see, scared enemies make dangerous ones. And that's what's happening in this passage. You don't know how they'll be provoked or how they'll react as we discover in the the following verses. So I want you to pay attention to the threats that are experienced, the response that's expressed, and see how that might relate perhaps to situations in your life. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan 
had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they, the nobles, spoke of his, Tobiah's, good deeds in my presence, Nehemiah says, and reported my, Nehemiah's, words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So we're introduced here to this man named Tobiah the Ammonite. The Ammonites are the historical enemies of Israel in 2 Samuel. And so with all the surrounding nations, all these other neighbors, the, the fellow trolls in the home association of the Middle Near East, they tried to block construction of the wall through political machinations and intimidations. We saw that in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, and they failed. Behind the scenes here, after the completion of the wall, verse 17, there's political officials in Judah, Jewish people, who are going behind Nehemiah's back to open diplomatic relationships with Tobiah to see if they can work a deal, to see if they can reconcile Nehemiah and Tobiah, to see if they can reopen trade. But why would they negotiate with a known enemy? Verse 18, if you look closely, it turns out that many of them have sworn oaths of loyalty, of friendship, of business partnership with Tobiah because he's actually married to the daughter of Shechaniah. If you don't remember him, he was this Jewish official in charge of the East Gate in chapter 3, verse 29. And his own son is married to the daughter of Meshulam, another Jewish official who's, who was working on the wall in chapter 3. In other words, Tobiah is well-connected with influential people in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice here, how do the nobles try to sell Tobiah to, to Nehemiah? Verse 19, they, speak, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. I want you to imagine this. Hey, Nehemiah, we know that, uh, you know, he said some bad things about you, which he did in chapter 4, and that, uh, you know, he's not necessarily a worshiper of God, but he's a good dude, he's a good neighbor, a family guy. He has a lot of influence and affluence that can help build up a community. He could open a lot of doors for us. We think you should talk to him, maybe cut a deal. <coughs> You see, one of the great temptations in life is to compromise with influential people who are trying to influence you. That on the surface may have very smooth words, may have very beneficial actions, but if they're not aligned with your values and your vision, can have an insidious influence on impressionable people who lack discernment, who can get, who can get you to compromise yourself and your integrity or your faith. Now, Nehemiah, he sees through this, and he rejects the offer completely. You can imagine what he probably said. You know, I, I haven't forgotten this scoundrel, the one who dangerously accused us of trying to rebel against the Persian Empire when we started rebuilding the wall, chapter 2, verse 19, who insulted us and me personally, chapter 4, verse 3, who tried to trick me, Nehemiah, into breaking God's law and discrediting my character in chapter 6, verse 12. And we know that Nehemiah says something like that to the Jewish officials to counter Tobiah's influence because what do they do? They go rushing back and report Nehemiah's words directly to him. And now I want you to pay attention. How does Tobiah respond? This is how we know that Nehemiah spoke so strongly against Tobiah's character. Tobiah sent letters, threatening letters, to make me afraid. Nehemiah, you probably know that I have a lot of friends in Jerusalem. I could turn them into supporters, or I could turn them against you. 
He's revealing his true colors here. If you want to see if someone is dealing with you in good faith, say no to one of their requests and then see how they react. Do they react with respect or with threats? And so the point of this section of Scripture is that like Nehemiah, we need to remain vigilant by not letting ungodly influence infiltrate the people of God. We need wisdom and discernment and character rooted in a relationship with Jesus and His Word. Otherwise, we're going to let all kinds of influence poison people with deception and misinformation and compromise. And I know you're thinking, Oh, here's, here goes the pastor. He's going to give us a long lecture about why you shouldn't get drunk and this, that, and the other. Yes, whether it's sinful immorality or sometimes whether the influence is poor theology, both can be deadly. I wonder if you're familiar with the word of faith movement, something that looks very Christian, but it's actually false teaching. It's basically this whole movement that believes that you and I can just access the power of God by simply speaking it to existence. That your word, the power of your word, your faith in your word can make God do things for you. So you can just claim prosperity or claim healing in your life. And this is not a new movement. This has been happening a long time, but it's very prevalent in our society today. Larry Parker and his wife in 1973, influenced by a word of faith preacher, tragically decided to withhold insulin from their 11-year-old son, Wesley. Predictably, he went into a diabetic coma. But because of the influence of this word of faith movement, they continued to positively confess healing over their son until the time of his death, 11 years old. And even afterward, they were undaunted by his death, and they conducted a resurrection service instead of a funeral for their son. So nobody was able to celebrate or say goodbye to him. And after more than a year, they refused to abandon this word of faith teaching until they were tried and convicted of manslaughter. In 1980, they wrote a book, We Let Our Son Die, confessing all the things that had, they had done. Question, is that faith or is that folly? Folly, right? Because they didn't know the truth of God, the word of God. They were unable to detect and defend against ungodly influence. Now, listen to me very carefully. People hear this message and think it's this kind of like, you know, old school, uh, hardcore conservative message about don't let, don't have, be friends with certain people. That's not what this, this message is about. Because that's the opposite of our life and our mission that Christ has called us to, to be winsome in integrity and generosity and kindness and forgiveness and in friendship with people who don't know Jesus, to, to show people the goodness of Jesus. But you and I also need to have character and wisdom and the Word of God rooted in a relationship with Christ in order to resist the wrong kinds of influences. And even if you're spiritually healthy, the point of this whole passage is that we can't be complacent. And so let me ask you, here's a, your complacency test. Who or what are you allowing to compromise your integrity? Who or what are you allowing to speak ungodly influence into your life, into your family, into your ministry. You need to be vigilant. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, 
when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So what's the antidote to ungodly influences infiltrating God's people? Raise up godly influences around you, people who can be a positive influence. In verse 1, once the walls and the doors are completed, Nehemiah makes sure to raise up key leaders, those who oversee the defense of the city gates, those who lead worship, the singers and the Levites. In other words, he raises up people who protect the physical and spiritual health of the community. And once he's done with that, in verse 2, Nehemiah appoints two officials to oversee the capital city of Jerusalem. Two people, because it's a big job that requires a lot of work and also a lot of accountability, right? A little bit of checks and balances. So who are the two people that he chooses to trust? First of all, his own brother, Hanani. And I know you're thinking, well, that's kind of nepotism, right? Like favoritism. Uh, but I want you to remember who Hanani is. He's the one who first brought news about the, repair, the disrepair of Jerusalem to Nehemiah in chapter 1, verse 2. Hanani was the one who was the messenger of God's conviction that God used him to give Nehemiah a vision. And this whole time, Hanani, alongside his brother Nehemiah, has been committed and faithful to the restoration of God's city and God's people. But where I want us to land is look at the second person. Hananiah, he is what would be considered a minor official in, Jer in Jerusalem. He's in charge of uh, the small tower fortress that's within the, the, the city walls or within the city of Jerusalem itself. And what I want you to notice is that it is not his middle management experience that Nehemiah trusts that stands out for Nehemiah. Look at the verse. For he was more faithful and God, a God-fearing man than many. It's not his competency. Being vigilant doesn't mean that we need to guard everything and, and limit the authority and influence to a trusted few pastors and leaders. No, like Nehemiah, we want to entrust responsibilities to people of faithful character, like Hananiah, who demonstrate that they're God-fearing and how they love and worship the Lord and demonstrate that they're faithful as a reflection of God's grace and truth and life in their character. You can tell by people's attitude, their actions, their decisions, their integrity. That's why we entrust faithful followers of Jesus in this church with real responsibilities like shepherding a small group, like leading worship, like teaching a class, like heading up local outreach, like blessing, blessing visitors with a greeting or with refreshments or running lights like Isaiah Yeh is doing for the first time in the back there to the glory of God for the good of people. It means as your spouse or your child grow in their faith and faithfulness that you empower them by trusting their character instead of your control. Because sometimes we hold so tightly to controlling other people. It means that as we build and protect the work of God and the people of God, that it's not just about competence, but about character. You see, we see this too often in churches across America. That all the competency in the world cannot compensate for a lack of character. Character is the great leveler. You can be smart, but if people don't trust you and your example and your faith, they won't want to work with you. You can be the best preacher in the city, 
but without character. Nobody's going to continue listening to you. A lack of character kills careers. It shatters families. It ruins friendships. It destroys influence. And even if you're never fired or divorced over a moral compromise, it'll limit the depth of your intimacy and joy with God and other people if you lack character. So as we talk about raising up people, godly influence, people into positions of influence and authority, competition, or excuse me, competency can get you in the room, but it's only character that will keep you there. Do you understand? In the kingdom of God, it's character, not competency, that determines your capacity and the responsibility God entrusts to you. And so I want you to think about, for your life, for your family, who are you entrusting and empowering with responsibility and influence? In your life, in your ministry, with your family? Is it just people that you think are smart and capable? Or is it people of deep faith and character? Let's wrap up this passage. Verse 3. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from amongst the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts at the gates, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within, within it were few, and no houses had yet been rebuilt. You see, the responsibility that Nehemiah gives to people, it's not just spiritual, it's practical, because spiritual life is always relevant and practical to practical life. And so in verse 3, he appoints residents of Jerusalem to guard duty. Now, it's the residents because they're more invested, because this is their city, this is their families that live here. But the problem in verse 4 is that this city is too wide, it's too large, there's not many inhabitants yet because construction of new homes has taken a back seat to rebuilding the wall. Remember? It took 52 days. They've been basically, that's all they've been doing. And so because the city is too wide and large to guard everything, what do they do? They focus on guarding the gates and the homes. Why? I want you to think about this because those are both strategic entry points for what you let in that can influence or affect your friends, your family, the people of God, the city gates and your homes, what you let into those things. And so the last thing that we see in this passage is that you and I are to remain vigilant by guarding the gates and guarding the homes of God's people. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully. What that does not mean is closing the church gate to some people, because we welcome all people who are looking for hope and help, who are looking for Jesus. What it does mean in a church is that we guard the gates of the biblical theology of the church. What I mean is that there's a lot of things that appear Christian, as we saw in that previous story I shared with you about Larry Parker, but actually either add on to the gospel or subtract from the Bible. For example, one of the popular things in our society today is the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel. In other words, the, the claim that by being richer or by being poorer and having less stuff somehow makes you closer to God. 
And both are false because, no, only faith in Christ makes you closer to God. We need to guard against all kinds of incorrect teachings and poor theology, but we also need to guard against the idolatry of political party because that influences our theology sometimes. We often allow politics to interpret the Bible instead of the truth of the Bible to shape your politics. And I want to tell you, you've heard me say this before, that if your values tend to align too closely with either political party, you are probably worshiping a false god of your own creation. I hear it all the time from people on the left and on the right, how the Bible matches up with this party much more so. Guard the gates of your theology. And you also need to guard your home. You don't allow someone to just say or do whatever they want to your family because you want to be a loving Christian. That's not grace, that's folly, the Bible would call it. And because of our poor boundaries, we ignore or invite toxic people and sin and situations into the walls of our homes, into the minds of our kids when God calls us to protect them. Guard your homes. April 2nd, 2001 was the worst U.S. fishing accident in over 50 years. It took place near the Bering Sea, like that's kind of up north towards Alaska. The Arctic Rose was a 92-foot commercial fishing trawler that suddenly went down into frigid waters 205 miles northwest of St. Paul Island. All 15 members of the crew went down with the ship, and for some reason there was no radio call sent for help. So the Coast Guard began an investigation. They discovered the boat beneath 428 feet of icy water. Only one body was found no survivors. After three years of investigation, they figured out the most likely reason for this wreck. You see, they had these underwater cameras that were sifting through this information, and they showed that on the boat, several doors and hatches had been left open. And since not all of the crew members were experienced shipmen, A lot of these novices didn't understand the importance of keeping watertight doors closed. And so the investigators said this, ill-trained, inexperienced crew would frequently tie the doors open to let fresh air into the fish processing area because of the smell, right? And what happened was that waves from the rough sea swept into the trawler through this open door into other open doors and hatches, and the result was the boat capsized in less than two minutes. Two minutes. That's all it took to sink this 92-foot boat. And the problem is, oftentimes, you and I fail to secure the doors of our family and our ministry. We leave it wide open for anyone to pour whatever they want into the place, into the people within, and flood it with temptation or deception and devastation. Now, what this doesn't mean is that we don't lock ourselves into a closed-minded echo chamber. We listen to others with compassion. We learn from others with humility. But with our church and with our kids, make sure that you get the last word in. Guard it against sin and Satan and spiritual attacks and lies by speaking biblical truth. And so I want to ask you, are you guarding the gates of your theology, of your family, 
of your ministry. As we celebrate this new year, I hope that you will rest and recharge and remember God's goodness and mercy. And as you pause, also be prepared. Remain vigilant against the threats that come to God's work and God's people. It reminds me of a man from Texas named Jeremy Sutcliffe. He was working in his garden one day when he saw a diamondback rattlesnake uh, just moseying about in his garden. And so what did he do? Took a shovel, chunk, decapitated the snake, cut its head right off. Now, when he went to go pick up the snake's remains to dispose of it, he was startled when the severed head actually bit him. You see, a snake's bite reflex can still be triggered up to several hours after its death. Now, if you don't know what a, like a rattlesnake's venom is like, it's, it's highly de deadly. And so he had to be airlifted to a hospital where he was required to be treated with 26 doses of anti-venom. And even afterwards, though he, he was able to get into stable condition, he still lives with a weakened kidney function. You see, at the cross, Jesus dealt a death blow to the serpent, serpent named Satan the enemy of our souls. He is a defeated foe. However, he will spend every last breath attempting to harm the followers of Jesus, to thwart the work of God. And so Peter, the apostle Peter, warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, whom he may devour. And so we can't let convenience and complacency cause us to ignore threats because they will come from false teachers, from predators, from Satan and spiritual attacks. And so we need to be prayerful and practical in how we defend these things. Otherwise, everything that you have built for God, everything you've worked so hard to build for Christ can be taken, broken, or destroyed. And so I want to challenge you in this new year. Guard your walk with Christ. Guard your family and your marriage and your ministry. Guard, your, guard the work of God that he's doing through the church. Don't just let other people do the work. You be someone who takes responsibility to build and protect it with prayer, with scripture, with truth from Christ. Guard your walk with God's people in community. Too many of you are drifting as a lone ranger when as part of a small group you experience help and hope and support honesty, and accountability. Don't be absent. Don't be complacent. Remain vigilant. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word and your love for us. We invite you to speak to our hearts, to convict us. I know this is a somber message, but in this new year, that we wouldn't take our feet off the accelerator, but instead, allow you to continue propelling us forward, building your ministry, building your family with the love and the truth and the grace of Christ. So we praise you. We ask that you would speak to us in the name of Jesus. Amen.